but the next apartment almost killed me. Within six months of that, I was unable to work. A fever, sore throat, like I would, it, it seemed like I was sick. And by May, my spine had caught fire, which I would find out later was ankylosing spondylitis. I went to my new primary care physician and I explained, I've gained a lot of weight. I don't feel well. My family has tons of thyroid problems. Like I think my thyroid's not working. And she responded, I think you're depressed because you're unmarried, childless, and stuck in a dead-end career. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, RemediesCounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews. Pretty much everyone who's had a chronic or complex illness will have a story to tell about some of the most ignorant and arrogant and dangerous utterations made by physicians. I've spoken with a lot of healthcare workers and patients from a wide variety of healthcare systems, and regardless of their geographic location, the God complex physician culture is rampant in their institutions and is a significant cause of medical error, harm, and death. When Jenna Payne's health took a nosedive, she encountered countless doctors that dismissed or denigrated or shamed her physical symptoms. Turns out Jenna wasn't faking her symptoms and she didn't need a husband and a baby. What Jenna needed was a competent physician. In our interview, Jenna takes us on a journey from the United States to Russia and from health care to health harm. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, and all of the podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with medical error and or living with complex chronic illnesses, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. 
Now, here's my interview with Jenna Payne, and a word of warning as always that some folks may be triggered by Jenna's experiences with the healthcare system. Awesome. Thanks, Jenna. Uh, so where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Uh, I grew up in the South. I grew up in Georgia and it was, I mean, I think a lot of us with medical histories have had to sort of like revise it. And I do think I got sick kind of young and there were some indications that something was wrong. Um, although I would take that life over my current life, like without question. <laughs> Um, but, uh, you know, I was like very outgoing, um, but struggled to fit in kind of kid, really excited about things that I loved. Like, uh, you know, I was one of those kids who loved ancient Egypt, wanted to be an Egyptologist and then paleontology, like just really into learning. And, uh, if you were being kind would describe as precocious, but some people would describe as annoying, just kind of hyper and unfocused really struggled to fit in like uh especially in middle school middle school was awful and then in high school i just kind of i was like trying to fit in is clearly not working so i don't care <laughs> and i'll just do and be what i want to be and and sort of move more in that direction and ironically made more friends that way <laughs> yeah and so you moved on to college i'm assuming uh i uh did my first year in uh New Orleans at Tulane. And in retrospect, I kind of wonder if that was my first big mold exposure. Then transferred into NYU, there was no journalism program at Tulane and I always wanted to write. And so it seemed sensible to study journalism, but this was 03. So by the time I graduated, the bottom had totally dropped out of like journalism had completely imploded and I've never made any money in journalism in my life. Um, so, uh, what good luck, but, uh, but yeah, Tulane and NYU and I did, um, kind of a year off. I did like two internships abroad for credit, uh, experienced another massive mold exposure when I was living in St. Petersburg, Russia. Okay. So take us back to Tulane. Why do you suspect that you may have been exposed to mold then? Um, it was a really old building. I was in one of their like, I think late 1800s dorms on the top floor. Um, and I had like a classic mental breakdown. I ended up in a hospital for five weeks. I checked myself in. Uh, I just had stopped sleeping completely. They put me through you know, a series of antidepressants and stuff. And I'd sort of been off and on that stuff since I was 13. Um, and it just, it just did not go well. I would like slept all day. I was really struggling mentally. And so I, I think something was wrong health wise in retrospect. Okay. And then yeah. uh, you just fast forwarded us to Russia. Wow. Yeah, that was, yeah, it was, uh, that building definitely on the top floor again. And it's it, like, when it rained, it rained all the way through the elevator shaft and you had to take the stairs. So that one, without question, I think there was a problem. <laughs> Spoke Russian, okay. I worked at the New York Times technically as an intern, although they didn't really have like a formal internship set up. And I was also extremely depressed again, even after moving out of that building and wasn't maybe the greatest intern. It didn't end super well, but anyway, <laughs> I was like 20. 
So after your Russia foray and being exposed to mold again, uh, what happened next in your life? Uh, I went back to New York and finished college, you know, was applying to jobs and trying to get, get my life started. Could not get an interview at any journalism place at all, even though I had, after leaving Russia, also worked for the Associated Press in Brussels covering EU stuff. So I ended up getting a temp job in venture capitalism, which is was really not a good experience. It just wasn't. Uh, and, and I quit and went back to waiting tables and I did that for a while. A few years later, I finally got kind of a real job. I was an executive assistant at a law firm, but still pretty unhappy. And I sort of accidentally fell into film production. I was like trying to figure out you know, journalism wasn't going to work out. I, maybe I could write the great American novel, but could I get it to the right place where someone could read it? And um, I slowly started working on a feature-length screenplay with a friend of mine. Took a couple weekend workshops and directed my first, wrote and directed, co-wrote and directed my first short film. And I was just hooked. I loved it. So that's what I've been pursuing career-wise ever since then. I, in fact, before I got really, really sick, I worked in film production mostly for commercials, which is an exhausting, very unhealthy profession, uh, even if you're well. But I, I, when I got really sick, I was unable to work in that especially anymore, which was kind of devastating. But Okay, so tell us about when you got really sick and it impacted your career. I moved to Los Angeles from New York in 2013. And that first year, I felt really good. Uh, my career was going well. Like, I literally kind of accidentally moved. I um, had sort of starved to death in New York all winter. There's not a lot of production when it's cold. And then as a woman, I'm less likely to get called for, like, set work. They'll call all the guys first. And then, so it's I'm kind of fighting for the few office jobs there are. So... Um, I came out to LA to freelance briefly and I, I hadn't bought a return ticket yet. And on the second job, I like doubled my day rate and was able to buy a really shitty 1990 Toyota Corolla. And, um, and I just stayed. Uh, but so I kind of bounced around and didn't have an apartment, a permanent apartment for a while. I like would stay with friends or have these series of like weird sublets or house sittings or whatever. The first year was great. And then I finally signed on to an apartment. And five weeks after I'd moved in, it still smelled like paint. That's how little ventilation there was in there. So I suspect that apartment had at least some mold. It was like a 1920s building. But the next apartment almost killed me. So in 2016, I moved into an apartment in Hollywood that looked great. Price was great. And we, uh, my boyfriend moved with me at that time. And um, we realized that several tenants had not stayed in that apartment for very long, but we couldn't figure out why. In December of 2016, it started leaking in our apartment, top floor again. Within six months of that, I was unable to work. Like I had like a series of, every time it leaked, I would get like a fever, sore throat. Like I would, it, it seemed like I was sick. And within like four months, I had worked my last job in production. And by May, my spine had caught fire, which I would find out later was ankylosing spondylitis. 
I was trapped in that apartment. We couldn't afford to move. So I was there for another, from 2017, another two full years. And when did you connect the dots that it was the apartment, that it was mold in the apartment? Well, um, that gets into my doctor odyssey. So like that first apartment I had moved into in late 2013. In 2015, I wasn't feeling great. Like the first thing that went wrong is I wasn't able to digest food very well, which is like totally the opposite. Like I used to, you know, food just passed right through me basically. <laughs> um, and then I became very constipated and started gaining weight. And it was really weird. I just knew something was wrong. And I would go to the doctor and they would be like, well, you should really diet. You know, and I thought something was wrong with my thyroid, which turned out to also be true, but that was ignored for two years or something like that. So, and then in 2015, I started feeling more pain. And so I sort of redid my insurance so that I could see more doctors. And in 2016, I was really going to figure it out. I went to my new primary care physician, which was just whoever was assigned to me by insurance. And I explained, you know, I've gained a lot of weight. I don't feel well. My family has tons of thyroid problems. Like I think my thyroid's not working. And she responded, uh, I think you're depressed because you're single, un unmarried, childless, and stuck at a dead-end career. That was literally her response. And it just happened to be the week that my boyfriend and I had had a huge fight and he had actually moved all his stuff out. So of course I burst into tears, like confirming everything she thought. <laughs> and uh, I never saw her again. I, I, I know a lot of chronically ill people let, have self-doubt with this, but I was sure that something was wrong. And I literally have had something like 30 doctors tell me I'm fine. <laughs> and they're all wrong. They're just wrong. Um, so that was never my particular issue. And I, I would say if you suspect something's wrong and whatever the doctor is saying is not resonating with you, they're probably wrong. They're actually wrong a lot, especially with these complex multi-system illnesses that, you know, their specialty only covers this tiny sliver of, you know. I totally concur with you. Mm -hmm. The uh, state of knowledge of our bodies is embryonic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, they can be an expert in endocrinology or whatever, but I will always be the expert on me. And if you feel like something's wrong, if something has changed, you're right, they're wrong. I just, I, I totally believe that. And I actually, there have been a few doctors who have refused to see me again, because I, I can be quite difficult in, <laughs> in appointments. Yeah, I had a, a guest tell me that when the doctors couldn't figure out what his problem was, he became the problem. I, I have been fired as a patient. I have been ghosted by more than one doctor. And you're in Canada, right? Yeah. Yeah. So your system's a little bit different. I understand that it may be a little bit harder to get a second opinion. Although you guys do not piss away as much money as we do on like crap care. So there's give and take there. Um, but here I can always just go see another doctor. Like I, I, you know, and I have used that to my advantage 
or sometimes, you know, like I just burned through two endocrinologists earlier this year because I probably have a pheochromocytoma, just like a rogue adrenal gland that's just flooding your system with adrenaline. Um, I've done two of those cholecatamines, 24-hour urinalysis tests, the metanephrines are high. And they're just, I understand that there are some diagnostic protocols, but like the way medicine does it is, I am outside of the normal range for sure, two different tests, but they can't diagnose me with anything until I'm four times over the normal range. At what point, what does normal mean? And also I'd be at risk for a heart attack at that point. And, and this is what medicine does constantly. Like they just, it seems like there's no critical thinking involved. Um, and neither endocrinologist could answer, you know, why are my results abnormal? Is there a different explanation? Well, no, but I can't diagnose you with this. But they always start with, you definitely don't have X. I was told for two years they didn't have ankylosing spondylitis. <laughs> You know, I was told for two years I didn't have a thyroid problem. I have both of those, you know, and I, I throw that in their face at this point and they, they don't, some of them don't like it, which is whatever. Um, but I, I just won't go see them again. So this is an ongoing challenge trying to find doctors who listen, who don't invalidate your physical symptoms and try to attribute them to psychosomatic or mood disorders. Right. I have also stopped uh, disclosing my mental health history. I no longer put it on my forms. Um, and that has changed things, you know, because they kept trying to put me on Cymbalta when I was complaining about chronic pain. And I was like, I don't want to go on an antidepressant. They don't agree with me. And I don't think that's the problem. And when I stopped writing down that I'd had depression in the past, they stopped suggesting it. It's amazing. Yeah. So uh, getting us back into chronological order. Yeah, sorry. How did that unfold? Uh, we were talking about the primary care physician. Uh, so after that, I went to an endocrinologist and she diagnosed uh, polycystic ovary syndrome and put me back on birth control, which I had been off for several years at that point, And I hadn't taken the pill for several years before that. So she put me back on the pill and the first month I felt better. I was like, maybe this is it. Unfortunately, after the placebo week, it just never helped again. And it actually put me into a deep depression, which then had me reevaluate why I was so depressed previously. And I, I definitely think the hormones were a contributing factor on that. One morning I was on my way to work and, and went to get coffee at a place and they were out of coffee and I literally cried the whole way to work. It was like 45 minutes, cried off all of my makeup and I was like, I'm never taking this stuff again. She tried a few other things. I ended up on um, like a testosterone blocker and metformin and I was having blood sugar crashes at that point. I don't know that the metformin really helped and she just you know, kind of ran out of things to try. Uh, she suggested I go to rheumatology. So I go see a rheumatologist and diagnosed with fibromyalgia, which I know can be a controversial diagnosis. I'm, I'm not of the opinion that it's a final diagnosis. I, I don't think it's not a thing. I think it's kind of like a purgatory of the diagnosis and three things will happen. Either you will miraculously get better, like you move out of a bad living situation or try something new and 
somehow reverse whatever. But I also think this is the best chance for you to reverse the damage if medicine would listen to, you know, some of the studies that indicate that there are things you can do to, for diseases like mine. Uh, you could plateau here in fibromyalgia and just be fortunately not progress enough to get a different diagnosis, but also just be stuck in this purgatory where you don't really know what's wrong. Or you'll get worse because as soon as you get an autoimmune disease, nobody talks about fibro. And uh, like you have myalgic encephalomyelitis, fibro, the hallmark is kind of pain, but we have fatigue as well. And for you, the hallmark is fatigue, but with like kind of a pain bonus or however you yeah. want to. Yeah. <laughs> so she ran uh, several labs. The only thing that showed up was uh, that I was HLA-B27 positive, which is ankylosing spondylitis. Okay, and so um, for folks who aren't familiar with that term, what is that? It's a DNA marker uh, that puts you theoretically at risk, although later I, I found a, a doctor of osteopathy who is my most trusted provider at this point. And his opinion is that if you're positive and symptomatic, you, you have it. Um, it just may be, because it can take, ankylosing spondylitis is a severe degenerative autoimmune spinal arthritis, and it can take 10 years to show up on x-rays. I mean, by some estimate, like who knows when it really starts developing, right? You know, and I had a series of MRIs, and you could tell that there was inflammation, but a rheumatologist in 2017 declined to diagnose me repeatedly. The other thing is, so I'm a woman. When I first looked up ankylosing spondylitis, which was fall of 2016, I remember the description being mostly affects old men and uh, is stiffness worse in the morning that starts in the lower back. Well, they don't study any of this on women. They can't even be bothered to do like a basic survey at rheumatology offices. So anecdotally, actually, women present first in the neck. So when I was going around in 2017, describing my neck as feeling like it was broken, could someone please take an x-ray or MRI my neck? And I was denied everywhere. I ended up paying out of pocket at a chiropractor's office. I mean, that was it. Like if someone had actually MRI'd my neck sometime that year, it would have shown, I'm pretty sure, some severe damage. And when I finally got that x-ray, there was like two vertebrae way out of alignment pinching my spinal cord and just I mean it was just totally missed. Wow so how many years was that between when you were trying to get the imaging of your neck and? It was a full year. Um, I was uh, the HLA B27 came back positive in 2016 at which point on the internet most of the stuff I'm saying I'm seeing was describing it as like mostly affects older men and your lower back and I was like well that's not me right? So that one, I actually was like, well, this doesn't sound like me, right? And then in 2017, it, the HLA B27 came back positive again. There was some inflammation in my lower back MRIs, but not enough to diagnose. Nobody wants to diagnose. I'm not really sure if there's some kind of like, like punishment that happens if you diagnose a patient with an expensive disease, or it feels like there's some kind of discouragement from actually putting that diagnosis on the line and being the doctor of record to diagnose. For example, 
I just had another set of MRIs done last week, um, ordered by an orthopedist. And this was the first time that instead of saying investigating ankylosing spondylitis, it said patient has a history of ankylosing spondylitis. And the report is wildly different from previous MRI reports. So just um, that slight change in how they're framing it, validating yeah. it. And then suddenly it's everywhere. Like they can see damage all up and down my, it was like so frustrating. Anyway, so 2016, I sort of uh, had to change insurance. I got on my boyfriend's insurance for a little while because I was paying like $300 for not a lot of help at that point and just kind of ignored ignored it for four months. I think a lot of us go through periods where we're just like, I, I just can't keep dealing with this right now. So 2017, I get kicked over to Cedars-Sinai. I see my primary care physician. At first, I really liked her. She spent a whole hour with me, asked tons of questions, seemed to look at my records. You know, I mentioned the rain, it raining in my apartment. It was like a month or two after it had started leaking. And she was like, I can't remember if she said, we can't do anything about that or like, that doesn't matter, but that was kind of her response. Um, she did finally decide to put me on thyroid medication. It actually caused like a massive mood swing at first, which was kind of interesting. And so she sent me to endocrinology and the endocrinology that I, endocrinologist that I saw at that point, I, I explained, you know, I, I got put on this and then I cried every day for like two weeks and it was really weird. And he was like, well, you know, that's kind of like men getting put on antidepressants and then they finally have enough energy to like kill themselves. And I was like, what is wrong with you? And I told my primary care doctor, I was like, I don't want to see him again. Anyway, so she just ended up managing my thyroid for a little while. And I saw a new rheumatologist over there. Another amazing thing was uh, the last rheumatologist was at UCLA. I could not get my HLA B27 positive result out of there. And then I couldn't get it out of Cedars either. They also got a positive result. I've never gotten the result. F finally, in 2018, I got a piece of paper that says I'm HLA B27 positive on the third test. But it's like... So what... What's that about? What happened? I have no idea. I don't know. It was really weird. I, I just, I couldn't get any, uh, I, at Cedars, I got all of the other results, but the HLA B27 is like not in my patient history. It's not, I don't know where it went. Wow. So this rheumatologist puts me on, you know, a trial run of gabapentin. As I find out later, a very low dose, it did nothing for me. I worked my final job in production, which involved one like 24 hour work day. And then the next day I didn't sleep for 36 hours because I was working for part of it. And it, it went from like daytime shoots to like overnight and, you know, and then after I got off that job, I just, I did not feel well. And the week of Memorial Day. Oh, Jenna, can you unpack that a wee bit? How did you not feel well? What was going on? Well, I was getting those, every time it rained, I was getting that like fever, sore throat combo. I think there were two or three weeks that late winter and spring that I, I just like had a fever for like a week. And 
keep this in mind later when I talk about going to infectious disease, because I, you know, a lot of this stuff, I found out how it would have been better to approach these appointments after the fact, right? You know, I spent a lot of time on the couch watching TV. I just did not feel like being productive. Usually I would like um, work on a writing project or maybe try and direct something small in between jobs. And I just didn't have it in me. So the week of Memorial Day weekend, I got hired to help cast a radio commercial remotely. So I was supposed to be working on that. And it literally felt like my spine was on fire. It hurt so, so much um, that I couldn't sit up. And I went into rheumatology again. And, you know, she literally during the exam touches my back and I like jumped. It was so painful. And I begged for neck x-ray and she wouldn't do it and insisted that the lower back MRIs would show whatever she needed to see. And then it came back with like a low level of inflammation theoretically, and I can't diagnose you with anything. We went through a series of painkillers at this point, including like tramadol, which was not as fun as advertised. I just, that was not helpful at all. Something called endomethacin, which made me so ill, I only took it twice. And I was starting to realize that I don't think doctors are going to be able to help me before it's too late. So I found a kinesiologist nutritionist. Do your listeners know what kinesiology is? Exercise. Um, so it's muscle testing. It's sort of like a East Asian kind of thing uh, that has to do with like the electricity running through your body and basically you you kind of hold one hand forward and it's to test for sensitivities as well as like deficiencies so she'd like you know touch my liver and it would be like oh that's not working you know and then add a supplement to kind of help my organs process things I got put on laxatives finally, and then I could go to the bathroom suddenly. Yay. Yeah, it was wonderful. Um, I, I started losing some weight as well because I had gained since realizing I was not feeling well 40 pounds or something like that in two years. As helpful as the nutrition stuff has been, it is so expensive. Insurance will never cover it. I, to this day, spend like $1,000 to $1,500 a month on supplements. It's like rent on an additional apartment. And, you know, if I somehow went into remission and felt great tomorrow, I don't see any way that I'm not paying for at least half of that for the rest of my life. You know, I, I just, too much damage has been done. That was helpful. And that summer, I was you know, getting really depressed and frustrated. I finally went on disability. The rheumatologist signed off on it under fibromyalgia. But like, I just, I couldn't work. I was having um, brain issues, numbness and tingling in my hands, like severe coordination issues. I was having temper tantrums. Like I definitely had these like huge mood swings. And a lot of people have found me on Twitter after the fact. I think my mood swings um, had a lot to do with the mold, but also with my endocrine issues, both the thyroid and the pheo. But a lot of people have found me on Twitter and said that they were like diagnosed as bipolar for like 10 years. And what it really was, was a thyroid issue. You know, I, I mean, like, this is just like devastating to people to, to get misdiagnosed like that. 
Sorry, it's kind of interesting. On the one hand, they have a really hard time giving you the AS, the anachylizing. Ankylosing spondylitis. I know it took a while to figure out how to spell it. <laughs> yeah, so they have, they're resistant to give you that diagnosis, but they hand out these bipolar mood disorder diagnoses like they're candy. It's a nightmare, honestly. And it's so arrogant of them to think that your brain could affect the rest of your body, but it doesn't go the other direction. It's an outrage. And we're talking about, I think MDs can get away with as little as like four hours of mental health training. The one person who believed me this whole time was my therapist. She always thought something was physically wrong with me. And I think a lot of people feel the same way. Like the mental health professionals in their life are the most validating people. And I'm there partially because the doctors won't listen to me and it's traumatizing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, that summer was bad. And um, we ended up, uh, my boyfriend and I went up to Lake Tahoe, which as I found out later is a major epicenter of mold, oops. Uh, and I got very, very sick. I ran a really high fever almost instantaneously, stuffy nose, sore throat, the whole, as if I was in my apartment, the same kind of thing that happened with leaks. And that was the last fever I had for two years. I just stopped getting normal sick. That was the end of it. And uh, so when you say that, uh, some people may be thinking, oh, well, she never got sick again, but it's really your body stopped responding to infections. Yes. Yeah. And, and this is crucial for people who are early in their journey to understand because I didn't know this was possible. And I could have explained myself so much better, especially with infectious disease had I known that that was a, a signal that something was horribly wrong. That fall, I found a, a, section, a second kinesiologist, nutritionist, who did more of a, um, he did something similar to the first one with muscle testing, but it got more into the actual root causes. He was the first person to bring up Epstein-Barr virus, which is the virus that causes mono, which I, don't recall having had, but I did get very, very sick with like 104 degree fever when I was like 12 or 13. And I wonder if that was it. So a virus like that is supposed to be latent. It just kind of goes to sleep after you've gone through the first round. But if you're being exposed to massive amounts of mold, like I was, it'll kick up other issues. The virus sees an opportunity and, and activates again. He suggested that, put me on some additional stuff to deal specifically with the mold and the viral issues. Um, and I had a, an Epstein-Barr panel. And it depends on who you talk to about this. My DO, and even the endocrinologist, the second endocrinologist I saw at Cedars, agreed that it looked like something was wrong. Um, I'd have to actually pull up my results to explain this better. And for I... folks who aren't familiar with what a DO is. Oh, doctor of osteopathy. He specializes in joint stuff, um, but is a, a really good sort of holistic doctor. So if you do an Epstein-Barr panel, you'll get three numbers. Uh, the first is the EBV VCA IgM, and that's supposed to be for current infection. 
the second two are supposed to indicate past infections. That's EBV VCA IgG and the EBV nuclear AG antibody. My current infection showed up negative. I, you know, but also, are you supposed to have this test while you have a fever? Because I wasn't having them anymore. The second two, one of them was off the charts. It was literally over 750. They stopped counting. And the nuclear antibody is at 562. Now, infectious disease will tell you that this means you've had a past infection and you're fine now. But I found other resources that indicate if you're in the triple digits on either of those, you are not fine now. And I would certainly say, and this has repeatedly shown up in the triple digits. In fact, it's gotten even higher since this test. If the last one I took, both were off the charts, like they just stopped counting in both categories. You know, so I went into infectious disease after getting this result and after that endocrinologist ghosted on me. I don't know why. And my PCP fired me as a patient because a billing dispute I had had with Cedars because they, I hate Cedars. They had at every opportunity overbilled and I had fought them on every single one. And one of them somehow turned into a disciplinary action against my primary care physician who doesn't do billing, I'm sure, like her office does or something. So she had just kind of froze me out the rest of that year and like was argumentative over email, would not have me come in for an appointment. So I finally got really upset and tagged Cedars on Twitter. <laughs> and then I got fired as a patient and this endocrinologist who thought that the Epstein-Barr was probably an issue for me, never called me back. So I have no idea what he thought of the results. I've never heard from him again. But I did insist that I get sent to infectious disease. And that appointment started with, what are you doing here? And in order to get an appointment with infectious disease, they have to have your records. They will not see you without that. So you know what I'm doing here, you know? And then he proceeded to like talk down to me for the entire like 15 minutes about how if Epstein-Barr was a problem, this current infection would be spiked which I should have replied, well, was I supposed to only take the test when I have a fever? He's like, have you been sick lately? I said, no, because I didn't realize you could stop having a fever, you know, but remember that whole spring I was getting fevers like once a month or something like that. So I, I did not answer correctly. And then he sort of at the end tried to make me feel better by saying, if you were really sick, you'd be in the hospital like one of my other patients and you don't want that. And I was like, am I supposed to wait until I'm dying to, is that when you would actually acknowledge that something is wrong with me? So then I start over with a new doctor the next year and she was very attentive during the first appointment, but because I'm a complicated patient and because I somewhat suspect either the medical group or insurance punishes doctors for going out on a limb with patients like me, she has not ordered that many tests of her own accord. She does not want to be responsible for my medication. And if at all possible, she will send me to a specialist before taking care of something herself. So when I saw her, my brain fog was so bad, I had to like write down what I wanted to talk about and literally cross it off while we were talking. Um, that whole fall I had was no longer able to read. Like I would like read a paragraph and absorb nothing. 
I had to turn on my GPS to go anywhere because I would like forget I was going to the grocery store. Oh, and I had these weird symptoms that were like autism. Like I would go to Trader Joe's and you know, the cashiers are really friendly and look you in the eye and stuff like that. And I just couldn't look them in the eye. It was like such a stressful, anxiety inducing situation. And it was so strange to me. Later, I've been reading uh, The Body Keeps the Score, and there's like a section in that I think it has to do with serotonin levels as to whether you can deal with direct eye contact. It's kind of like a primal leftover in our evolution, which was really interesting. So I see this new primary care doctor, and she's like, you should have a brain MRI. Like, your neurology symptoms seem weird. And so she asks for a bunch of referrals, and insurance said no to all of them except for OBGYN. Every single one was denied. And so I spent the, my final six months on disability just fighting insurance to try to get to see any doctors. And then when I started back to work, I went back to work in post-production, which is not a salary job. It doesn't come with uh, doctor's appointments or flexibility. And so I was not able to see as many doctors and in fact got in trouble a couple of times when I was trying to see doctors. Like I just have to take the day off and lose money to try and see all my doctors in the same day, which I don't know if it's like this in Canada, but it's like impossible to be like, the 27th is a great day for an appointment. What do you have available, right? Everyone's like, oh, well, I only have this one slot available in the next three months and you have to take it, you know? When I went back to work, um, because my I was on a California short-term disability, which is up to a year. So I had to go back to work because we had bills to pay. I would literally just go to work and then lie down on my heating pad on the couch when I got home. And I, at this point, I'm still diagnosed with nothing except a thyroid problem and fibromyalgia. Uh, later that summer, I went to see a new rheumatologist, emphasized that really something's wrong. There has to be something you can find. And she orders a ton of tests through a different lab because she doesn't trust Quest, which is kind of the big lab and the one that my insurance usually covers. The only two things came back. My vitamin D was high, which was something that my chiropractor recommended. Oh, I think I forgot to mention that I found a wonderful chiropractor and I think he's the only reason why I can still walk. So my vitamin D was high. He had recommended that to boost my immune system. And my NHLA B27 came back positive again, and I finally got a piece of paper that said it was positive. She had me in, and she's like, you know, I can't really diagnose you with anything. And she goes, you know, sometimes I feel tired too, or I'll have like a little pain. I had not been able to sit up to wait for her. Like she took like an hour to get in the room. I'm like, they come in and I'm lying on the exam table because I can't sit up anymore. I lost it. I was like, this is not like a little pain. Like I used to work in film production. I worked 16 hour days. I used to live in New York. I walked like six miles in heels. This is not me being lazy or malingering or whatever. Something is horribly wrong with me. And then she goes and looks at the MRIs that are like a year and a half old at this point that every doctor has seen and diagnoses me with ankylosing spondylitis. So if you had not of advocated for yourself. I still wouldn't be diagnosed. <laughs> oh. So she wanted to put me on Humira and methotrexate immediately. 
go from nothing to those two. Honestly, if she had offered to inject me that day, I would have said yes. But um, I had joined several chronic illness threads on like Facebook and Twitter at that point, and I, I put it out to the crowd like, you know, they suddenly diagnosed me with this and want me to go on both of these things. And somebody mentioned low dose naltrexone. So I repeatedly called her office trying to get low dose naltrexone instead, and she wouldn't call me back. Um, I did get my chest x-ray to get cleared for TB, which you have to do for all the biologics, I think. I got sick again in October, not, no fever, but I had, um, what is it, oral thrush, which is uh, commonly occurring with Sjogren's, which when I heard what Sjogren's was, I was like, I feel like I have it. Thyroid thing? It's an autoimmune disease. So it, the hallmarks are dry mouth and dry eyes, but it can also affect your organs. I also tested positive for Coxsackie virus and went to see another infectious disease specialist like the week after Doctors or Dickheads was trending on Twitter. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm describing my like blood sugar crashes. I've had multiple high glucose tests at this point, but my um, uh, there's some kind of glucose average test that they use as the gold standard, but that would always turn up normal. But my individual glucose was always over 100 for like a year and a half or something every time I took it. You know, he once again talked down to me like I, you know, like a medical degree is the only way you can figure out that something's wrong. And, and I literally left that appointment in tears. He's like, you know, Coxsackie, you do have it and it does cause autoimmune diabetes and heart disease, but you don't have those. So we're not going like, you shouldn't think about that. It's not a problem. And then my glucose comes back at 147 from the labs he ordered. And then his office refused to talk to me again. I mean, it's just like, they're just waiting for me to be on insulin before doing anything. And I'm on supplements for all this stuff. Anti-inflammatory is like blood sugar, sort of stabilizers, all, like all kinds of stuff to deal with the stuff that they're just ignoring. Did you um, end up getting access to LDN, the low dose naltrexone? So I go in to follow up with her and she's like, they wanted to cancel the appointment. They're like, we see you haven't taken your injection yet. And I'm like, no, I've called multiple times asking the doctor to call me because I have a question. So, and I'm like, I'm showing up for this appointment tomorrow. You will see me because she hasn't called me. So I show up and she's like, I was like, I want to do low dose naltrexone first as a trial. And she goes, no doctor is going to give that to you. It's like off label. I also suspect she was in a pay to play with uh, Humira. Humira has gotten in trouble in California for paying doctors to prescribe it. So, um, and I know some people are on it and I, I don't, you know, blame or judge you for making that decision. But just at this point, it seemed to me that if they couldn't figure out how to diagnose, why would this necessarily actually be the best treatment? That was a wash. She literally ended the appointment with, call me when you want the real drugs. And I never went back. I tried to get low-dose naltrexone through my primary care physician. She wouldn't do it. I buy it on the internet and it gets shipped internationally. And if you want to try it, I'd say the risks are very low <laughs> and you can find it online. Um, it's helped me a lot. Right? 
it's it was it helped me so much i you do have to be very careful about like start low and go slowly like don't jump the gun because i have heard people who started at like four milligrams and it was a nightmare because what it does is it it boosts your immune system and you just have all of this autoimmune stuff i think including fibro and me are is like your immune system gets overwhelmed and it can be a variety of factors i don't think any two people have exactly the same story as to what went wrong but essentially your immune system is cranked up to 11 and unlike you as a person it's not like we're going to get rid of the epstein bar first and then the mold you know it's just kind of fighting everything at the same time none of it successfully and and that's how it ends up you know seemingly attacking your tissues but it's attacking stuff that's not supposed to be there so the low-dose naltrexone was a huge win. It was so helpful. And um, I stopped going to doctors again for a while because I was very frustrated. Actually, my chiropractor had recommended this DO who is now my most trusted provider. And I had like put off seeing him because I was so frustrated by doctors and he wasn't covered by insurance. I put it off for like nine months. The next spring, it rained again in my apartment. And this one put me in the hospital. I um, came home from work and it had rained the night before and leaked in the apartment. And after like three or four hours in the living room, which is where the leak was, I started feeling kind of feverish, really, but not probably didn't actually have a fever, like had the chills and that kind of like deep muscle bone pain but I don't think I was actually running a temperature. And at this point, I still didn't know that was possible to just stop running fevers. Um, I didn't find that out until like last year sometime. I went to bed and I got up sometime after midnight and I, I couldn't stand up. I felt like there was like a jousting stick going through my right abdomen. And I like woke my, my boyfriend up husband at the time. I think we got married. When was that? Um, I think we were married. And um, I was like, we have to go to the hospital. So we go to the hospital. I'm like in the fetal position. I'm in so much pain. I can't really talk. And the doctor brings me back and he immediately offers me morphine. And I said, oh, no, but I was, I couldn't explain why. I have so many digestion problems. I don't want painkillers they just it turns into a cement mixer I just can't and whatever was going on it needed to come out was pretty obvious to me so as soon as I said no to the painkillers he instantly assumed that I just wasn't in such bad pain like you could just see his demeanor change and I, I still was in so much pain that I couldn't explain so they they drew some blood and uh, did a saline wash of my through the IV hookup. And almost instantaneously, I was able to get out of the fetal position and kind of roll over and could speak in a whisper. So what's a saline wash? They literally just injected saline into my bloodstream, which I am not sure why they chose to do that. But I, like the two days after I got out of the ER, maybe three, I saw this DO for the first time he looked at my results and he was like, you were almost septic. So when they put saline in my bloodstream, it rinsed out and sort of enabled my body to better fight this almost infection that I had. 
the ultrasound found something in my kidney, which judging from an MRI I had of my abdomen earlier this year was probably either a cyst, I've had a lot of cyst problems, or a congenital defect. And I requested, the tech told me that there was something in my kidney, not the doctor, of course. I requested a urinalysis. I wanted a thorough urinalysis and I was refused. They did like a dip test. You know, you can't tell anything from that. And they released me and they told me to go home. And what's most frustrating about these ER scenarios is most of us, we're not asking to be admitted. I don't want to go stay at the hospital. But with stuff like autoimmune disease, your flares are when stuff's going to show up in your labs, which is why so many of us are like frustratingly normal most of the time, right? Because it's not bad enough to light up in, in normal labs. And we're not going to get our blood drawn on a day when we feel absolutely horrible, right? So I think the ER would be a great place to just like, okay, you, you have autoimmune suspicions or you have ankylosing spondylitis, let's run, you know, your ANA and all this other stuff um, while you're here and you feel terrible and it's probably going to show up, but it's just not treated as that kind of like diagnostic opportunity. So the DO looked at um, those results and was like, you were almost septic. This is and he's like, mold is definitely a problem. This is the blood test you should order. And I finally ended up getting an aspergillus blood test where you're positive at two. And I hit 49, which was almost off the charts. It like matched the mold inspection report of our apartment from the year before, after which they had theoretically remediated. He looked at my Epstein-Barr results. He's like, this is definitely a problem. Um, and had some actual recommendations based on real studies that are real medical recommendations. And if I had had this opportunity a year or two years earlier, I don't think I ever would have gotten this sick, right? He wanted to put me on board Canazol, which is a, a very expensive antifungal if your insurance won't cover it. And I had to argue with my PCP and insurance for two months to get put on it. Meanwhile, the mold is kicking up the viruses again in my system. I mean, the voriconazole is no joke. It was very hard on my kidneys and my liver. Uh, you definitely have to be careful. And like, if you taste metal in your mouth, like skip a day, like it was, it was intense, but I think ultimately very helpful because all that summer, like if I walked into a sick building, I immediately felt that like jousting stick in my abdomen. Like I was unable to return to sleep at my apartment that I had paid rent on for six weeks and we had to move suddenly. It was like so stressful. And uh, the DO also wanted to put me on a really high level antiviral. Um, and I ended up uh, being able to get Valtrex through my OBGYN. So I take that on a suppressive dose, but he wanted to put me on uh, valgancycloveir, which I was able to find a nonprofit pharmacy that actually services HIV patients. That's kind of their background. And this $1,500 medication was like $150, which is still really expensive for a lot of people, but man, that stuff was so helpful. And, and this DO makes his own anti-inflammatory and immediately gave me a dose. Um, in fact, on like our second or third appointment, he was like, how are you still able to walk? Because he, he just like completely understood all of the issues. And I actually at like 35 was one of his sickest patients. 
uh, and I, I told him the truth. I was like, I don't think I should be able to walk. I think I got lucky that I found the chiropractor and the nutritionist. I think I should probably be in a wheelchair by now. And I know there's some debate in the disability community because we all have like a sort of different experiences, but the chronic illness community, I mean, being in a wheelchair is helpful to be mobile and stuff, but like ultimately we don't have to get that bad. It's the healthcare system that ignores us so long and does the wrong things that, that puts us in that situation. Like I'm still able to walk around, but I can't really exercise still in lots of pain. The DO suspects that I have permanent nerve damage to my colon from the viruses. That was because it was ignored for so long that I'll just always have problems digesting food. He also is pretty sure I have Ehlers-Danlos, which made me a higher risk person for all of this. Oh my God. See, my hallmark is not hyperflexibility. I think it like all of my organs have kind of suffered and that was like sort of my digestive issues. I definitely have the skin problems, the bruising, the healing issues. You know, I can sort of a little bit do some of these, but you know, they had done the Baton scale and I don't pass that. Um, but I did like a commercial DNA test and ran it through Promethes and there's like 11 markers of EDS in that. So, I definitely think this is like a contributing factor and maybe we should run, you know, DNA, maybe send everyone to a geneticist so that you can ward off some of these problems later because the EDS would be like, I wouldn't even know I had it still if I hadn't lived in that apartment. So I, I got on the voriconazole finally last August. I was working, I had changed jobs not to work in post-production. I was doing production accounting at this job that just did not know what accommodations were and was like just a nightmare. One of my worst jobs. The office across the hall went under construction. So it was constantly like glue or paint or like I'd have to move my computer around as a disabled person, like just taking apart my ergonomic setup and like dragging it to a different room with no help. I had to wear a mask sometimes because it smelled so bad. And then one of my coworkers showed up sick and then was like, oh, I have strep. And then I got a sore throat and went to urgent care and they immediately put me on a Z-pack. And within an hour, I had like a fever and my nose had just like exploded. And I found out one of my chronic illness threads that this is mold. Because if you take the bacteria away with like the fungus goes unchecked and then you just have like this huge sinus problem. I missed uh, one of my best friend's bachelorette parties for that. And, but I actually ran a fever for the first time. So something had shifted where my immune system was like starting to function a little bit again. I got worse over the fall. It might've been viral, it might've been thyroid. It probably was both. The brain fog came back. Uh, basically I only lasted at that job another month and I went back on disability, short-term disability because I was eligible. So I'm still on that now. My thyroid totally crashed this spring. Like my TSH went up to like 24. And I, I'm not sure what triggered that, but something, something happened. As I said before we actually started recording, in late December, my husband's office used to be down the hall from a company based out of Wuhan. And we got extremely ill right after Christmas. 
but because my immune system is weird, my husband's the one who got pneumonia. He had to sleep sitting up in that chair for like five days. I didn't get pneumonia, but I, I even at the end of February felt awful. And that was when I finally paid for the Valgansa Cyclovir out of pocket. And I was on that for a month and my brain came back and it was great. It was totally worth the like $300 or whatever. And so that's an antiviral. It is. It is a very expensive, very new antiviral. And if you can get a doctor to write it and you're having some of these issues, I'd highly recommend it. There are some small studies. What was it? It's specifically cytomegalovirus, I think was the one that my doctor shared with me. I don't have that one, but there was like a really tiny, like 25 person study that indicated that if you have Epstein-Barr, it would bring down your viral count if you took it. I mean, and this is the kind of stuff that if I had been put on the voriconazole and been able to get out of my apartment in 2017, if I had been put on the antivirals in 2017, I might never have noticed the arthritis, you know? But now I'm, I'm stuck with the degeneration that's happened, probably. Progressive degeneration? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's extremely progressive. I did this uh, spring also do three rounds of stem cell treatments. How'd that go? Very well. Um, I definitely think those are massively helpful um, with no side effects like Humira or something like that. And so um, where did they put the stem cells? So this is through my DO and DOs have access to this kind of stuff. And thankfully my DO is not one of those that charges like $600 a visit because I know that's pretty standard. Um, he's extremely affordable and, and wants to help. So the first two were infusions directly into my bloodstream. He described it as like, it'll, in about seven to 10 days, you'll feel like growing pains where it's healing, like it will hurt, but that's the tissue kind of rebuilding itself. And he was right. It was not pleasant for those. But after that, like vertebrae in my spine that hasn't moved maybe in even longer, you know, like I probably had a low grade problem that was just under the radar, not very noticeable in my late 20s. But some of this stuff, I don't think it has moved in like 10 years, you know. My back is feeling a lot better. I still have pain days. It's, I mean, the MRI I got last week is more degeneration than I had previously, or it's a combo with this finally patient has history of ankylosing spondylitis versus does patient have ankylosing spondylitis, you know? I, I definitely would recommend the stem cells if you can afford them, but they're not cheap. I mean, none of this stuff is cheap. It's, I have, I actually keep track for my taxes and I just send my accountant, you know, everything that I've spent on healthcare. And it's like over $60,000 at this point over like since 2016, when I started counting. And it's of course gone up and up every year. I think last year it was like 16 grand. I mean, it's like just a devastating set of illnesses, financially, emotionally, physically, it is awful. And it affects millions of people, millions of people go through this and lots of people can't afford to do what I've done, I got lucky with um, finances over the past few years. You know, they just get worse and worse. And 
become like a, a drain on their insurance, on the social welfare system. And everyone I've talked to, they would love to like be productive, to like have a job or at least be able to pursue their hobbies or whatever. And like, we can't consistently do any of that. Even I struggle to like consistently work on my film projects and meet deadlines and that kind of stuff because it's, you know, very touch and go every morning. It's like, did I take enough thyroid medication? <laughs> you know, did I sleep enough last night? Why is my back hurting? You know, so, and then the third stem cell treatment, he actually injected most of it directly into my neck and then some of it still into my bloodstream. And I think that's been helpful too, but I actually feel like the infusion was a little more noticeably different. I don't know if that's just because they were first or what, but that was pretty interesting. Um, and so that's kind of where my healthcare is at. I have enough, I'm trying infectious disease again because I'd really love insurance to pay for the valgancycloviir so that I have it available if I catch something. I also told you earlier I'm having to have a COVID test. Like after we get off, I'm going to go drive to the drive-through COVID testing and see if um, some of the weird symptoms I had this week coincidentally, maybe I picked up last week doing something, one of my appointments or it was my birthday last week, so we actually risked eating at a restaurant, but kept a face shield on the whole time. Uh, that's the reality now. So we'll see how that goes. Wow. But so yeah. Are you working on a film about the medical system? Yeah. In 2018, I started working on kind of a, a short form film describing the multiple obstacles to diagnosis, as well as how you're treated by doctors dismissed, ignored, um, especially women. Like my husband literally has the primary care doctor who fired me and she's great to him. Like he went into her office with like some chest pain and they gave him an EKG immediately. Meanwhile, they denied my neck x-rays and like she wouldn't see me after I caused some billing issues and whatever, you know? I mean, it's astounding. It's especially disappointing that female doctors are like that, but maybe that's indicative of how deeply they've bought into the medical culture. I mean, certainly the training is biased, and so you're picking it up there, and then also I think unfortunately people people tend to minimize this and, and give people a lot more credit in being able to stand up to systems than they have, but you know, I mean, you're participating in a sexist system, and in order to get ahead, you have to demonstrate that same sexism, because otherwise your performance reviews will be bad. So, well, yes, I would agree. It certainly was unconscious bias at play or subconscious bias, you know, whatever. You know, I'm not sure that I, like, blame her specifically. I think it's just so indoctrinated into you in medical school and in just every part of the system encourages and uh, emphasizes this kind of treatment, brave men and emotional women. Um, whereas, I mean, I don't know, like I'm definitely have more masculine traits than my husband at times. Like, you know, I'm, I'm the one who argues with billing and like, um, you know, they say bring, bring a man with you to appointments, but I don't think my husband would be more helpful than I am. 
you know, his, his skills lie elsewhere. Yeah. 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 I've heard other women say that uh, they'll bring their husband or boyfriend with them. And it's uh, two things happen. Either they get uh, a respectful uh, mm -hmm. appointment or their partner is shocked how they were treated by the doctor. Yeah. I, my husband was with me at that ER visit and I, I think I skipped this part, but they eventually discharged me based on food poisoning was there. And I said, we ate the same thing and he repeated it and they were, no, she just ate something bad. But I think that does work for some people. And if you have a man who will go to appointments with you and is a good advocate, like do it, whatever it takes. Right. But I'm just, I'm more the advocate in the, you know, our partnership. So that, that wasn't particularly helpful. Whose husband can afford to take off all that time to go to all these ridiculous appointments that are so frustrating and, and not helpful ultimately. What are you hoping for next in terms of your health and career stuff? What are you looking forward to? Well, I am looking forward to some stuff. The stem cells have been part of hopefully getting me back to uh, where I can more consistently be able to be productive and, and pursue the things that make me happy and that I, I've worked so hard for, right? So I've been working on this dark comedy, Medical Revenge, which is an expansion of that short film. It's called Hysteria, and it is a patient, much like myself, who's tired of being dismissed by doctors. She's chronically ill, she's undiagnosed, and she's mad as hell. And she uh, takes matters into her own hands and murders a bunch of her doctors and blows up an insurance company. Um, I've always been a, kind of a horror gal and I love horror comedy. And um, I thought this would be a really good opportunity to talk about a big issue that is only going to get bigger with COVID, right? I mean, we're about to welcome like millions of people to our ranks and the medical system, one is gonna go bankrupt if they don't start treating these people earlier for a lot of this stuff, you know? And two, I mean, just the amount of like lives, not literally lost, but like effectively halted for this kind of stuff, this is a tragedy. I mean, I would not wish this on, I wouldn't wish this on the most asshole doctor I've ever seen, you know? Well, I'm um, gonna disagree with you there because one of the I things- one of the things I think should almost be requisite for anyone to become a physician is to spend a month with a complex chronic illness, living with that, and also experience the gaslighting within the medical system. Now, I know I think we can't get that by an ethics board, but I'd still <laughs> like to see it happen. I think it would be really helpful. I don't disagree with you, but I think it's truly a terrible affliction. And unfortunately, because you can't cure it after a month, I think we just lose a lot of doctors that way. But I think everyone can make their own decision on that. I, I just personally, I, I don't, I wouldn't want someone else to have this. It's terrible. But, you know, there is a bit of schadenfreude going on with someone. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's kind of like the service industry, like everyone should wait tables for at least six months, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I've been working on that. And um, as I'm sure you know, it's not safe to shoot right now. Stu big studios can't figure out how to shoot safely. They tried to go back 
to set with Jurassic World and like on day one, several crew members tested positive. I think the industry is really struggling, but I figured out, I wanted to make this a live action movie with like fun blood tubing and explosions and stuff like that. But ultimately because I'm immunocompromised, it's not safe for me to be on a regular set either. So I've sort of pivoted this project to be like an elevated stop motion that's done in post where you shoot all the talent out on green screen at an acceptable distance with everyone else having face masks and shields on. Um, it'd be a pretty small crew because a green screen, the lighting kind of stays the same. You just set it up and, and have people get in front of the camera. Paint in the backgrounds in post, as well as some of the props and set dressing and effects and stuff like that. And so it's, it's kind of a cross between live action and animation in that sense. So I'm uh, working on a proof of concept for that, and then we'll be presenting it to producers and financiers soon, and hopefully making a full feature. And uh, judging by the like lack of content right now, I think it'll it has a pretty good shot of getting picked up, financed, and distributed. So, Especially because you've structured it in such a way that you can abide by the, the need to keep social distancing. Exactly, yeah. I think a lot of people have struggled with that, and I, I, I'm excited that I figured it out. While I still would argue, I've joked multiple times about um, classic Hollywood, uh, you know, I make this movie, and then I have a bunch of meetings because everyone loves the first movie, and they're like, well, this script isn't really anything like your last movie, you know? It's kind of like, well, do you expect me to die twice <laughs> to make something? Um, but like women and, and people of color, uh, the LGBTQ community, any marginalized creators, really the disabled community, like that's the kind of expectation if you're not like a average straight white guy it's really hard to get your, your stuff made. And I don't think it should have been as hard for me to get one project made. I'll take it, but it's, you know, it's frustrating to me that I had to go through this much misery to have something that people are really excited to, to work on. Whereas, you know, some white guy gets to make a, like a divorce comedy or like a stripper single mom drama and goes to Sundance and then, you know, gets all these accolades. It, it feels unfair. It is unfair. <laughs> so if folks wanted to connect with you online or, you know, follow you as you're making the movie and wait for that to come out, yes, uh, please. where can they find you? Sure. Um, my website is jennapayne.com. That's J-E-N-N-A-P-A-Y-N-E.com. And then I'm on Twitter at Jenna underscore Payne. Uh, you can find me on YouTube there as well. I think it's D-I-R Jenna Payne. Anyway, you should be able to search me on YouTube. And I have a comic book out called Zompire Vixens from Pluto. And you can get that on a website called Kipsel. That's K-Y-P-S-E-L. And I'll send you links, of course, as well that you can include in the write-up. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I've gone through a lot of shit and I'm ready. I'm ready for some wins. Well, I, I'm knocking wood for you and hope you get those wins. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Jennifer, for sharing your experience and, uh, and for putting yourself out there and raising awareness around the complex chronic illness community and how we're really medically marginalized. And that's so much. dramatic. 
it is it is traumatic and it's it's consistently traumatic and it causes more problems and you know i really want the healthcare system to understand how expensive it is to ignore us i am costing so much more because they're doing all the wrong things you know and they look at the books and they're like this patient costs a lot of money and i'm like well you're not helping <laughs> Um, but yes, thank you for having me. This has been great. It's been nice to get off my chest and explain myself. And it's also, I hope this helps someone out there as they navigate all the complicated ups and downs and about faces of trying to get diagnosed and treated for something like this. Yeah, no doubt some folks will be identifying with your experience as their own. Well, a big thanks to Jenna for sharing her experiences of trying to get a diagnosis for her illness. No doubt there'll be other folks listening to this episode who are familiar with doctors who dismiss their symptoms. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, and all of the podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with medical error and or living with complex chronic illnesses, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com.